before um, the message, I wanted to announce uh, that uh, we have a new member in the family. Michelle and Carlos Dodson uh, celebrated the birth of their second daughter yesterday. Prisca was born yesterday morning. You that know the Dodsons know that they're in the Bronzeville congregation. Um, they were part of the start of this congregation, and uh, this is one of those moments. Part of the reason why I try to remind folks of what's happening over there like this is because uh, we need to celebrate together, um, and some of y'all didn't know. Um, and I want to take uh, our moment of celebration for them as an opportunity to ask for one volunteer uh, this morning to come and to pray uh, a brief prayer. Uh, some of you are here uh, listening to me and you're pregnant. Uh, some of you are here listening to me and you want to be pregnant. Uh, some of you are here and you're within those first year, uh, two years of having uh, had a child. And uh, as a church from time to time, we find different ways to come behind you and alongside you and to pray for you. And uh, you hear me saying what I'd like for our prayer to be about this morning. And so uh, we don't do this uh, at all, I don't think, uh, to just kind of open the floor for one volunteer to pray in this way. But I'm going to ask for one person uh, to get up and come and pray. I'm going to uh, give you, uh, I'm going to give you a Mike C, Aaron, and uh, nobody's coming. I'll call you. I'll call you. I'll call you. We're going to have a prayer meeting. I'm just going to have you pray uh, for our church and for I'll turn the mic on while I wait. I won't look up because if I look at you, you know, you get nervous. But I'll, I'll give you the mic. Uh, come. Somebody come and pray for the families in our church who are uh, celebrating life and um, the first months and years of a new life. And for those who are looking forward to what God will do in bringing a life. I know how to pray. All right, come on, Mr. Ward. Thank you. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, it is awesome that we can call you Father. You're a Father who is always here. We trust you with the parents and the families of this church. For those who are struggling, who feel overwhelmed with the challenges of, of raising a child, or who are pregnant and expecting and overwhelmed with what is to come, we lift them up to you, Lord, knowing that you already know their hearts and all that they're going through, all that they're feeling, and that you already know what is to come. We thank you that you know these things. And we pray, Father, that, uh, that you would strengthen them, that you would minister to them and teach them how to be parents. Lord, you are the perfect parent, and you desire that families are healthy and whole. Lord, you desire that parents are good and raise their children with love and in the word and have homes that are filled with peace. Uh, who but you to ask to help parents, Lord. The child agrees. So, Lord, we, we pray for those who have recently had children, like Carlos and Michelle. At this time, uh, even though they've already had a child, Lord, 
It can still be difficult with the newness of the new one who is different. Pray, Father, you please speak to them. Continue to pour your spirit out in their home. Help them to be good parents, Lord. We thank you that you allow us to to make mistakes and to learn from them. So we pray for all of those who uh, are parents and families, Lord, that you would work through uh, both good and bad times, uh, both uh, agreements and disagreements, Lord, that we use all moments to strengthen them, to draw them closer together and closer to you, use them to teach them, help them to learn, help them to love. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who values family, who values uh, relationships that are healthy. Uh, So we thank you for what you are doing in the lives of those who are parents in the families in this church. Thank you for what is to come. For those who wish to have families and to be parents, Lord, we pray that you would speak to them. Pray that you would answer their prayers, Lord, if it is your will. You would help them to... uh, to bring children into this world and to raise them to be godly. Uh, we pray mostly, Lord, that you would give them peace, help them to put their hands in yours and to trust you and to wait. Uh, give them the, the patience necessary, Lord, to, to hold on uh, until you make it happen in their lives. We thank you, Lord, that we often have our own timelines and our own desires. And, um, and truth is, Lord, we don't know what's best for us. We think we do, but we don't pray that you'd convict us and remind us that you know what's best for us and help us to keep turning to you, to trust that in the end, Lord, you will work things out uh, uh, in a way that is glorifying to you and that is best for us. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Joseph. Thank you so much. And um, just your prayer is just a reminder to me um, that um, our church is full of folks who pray and who intercede and uh, some of you today are gathering just by way of reminder to, to learn more about intercessory prayer that is happening this afternoon uh, at the church office. And so um, hopefully more of you will be mobilized um, to pray uh, for us as a church. Um, this morning, um, we are still in this gospel sermon series, and uh, I am going to talk to you about Service, about serving, about the gospel, and how the good news and serving relate to justice. And this morning, I'd like to start by pointing out that throughout the scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is a thread that injustice is a contradiction. To the will of God. If we if we're to start in the earliest parts of Scripture, if we look in Genesis, when God is flipping Joseph's experience, for example, and he's imprisoned, if we are to look at that example, if we're going to go further and to look at how the Hebrew people are oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, we could see how God moves against injustice. If we're to listen to the prophets in the First Testament, and to hear their message well, we can hear how God reacts to, responds to injustice, how God deals with injustice. 
And this morning, I want to try to connect how God in Scripture deals with injustice, responds to uh, unrighteousness, responds to wrong and to evil, and at the same time lay out how the gospel is exactly God dealing with injustice. If we're to look at the last words, and this isn't on the screen, but the last words of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi closes by saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah. The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. These are the last words of the first part of Scripture, and hundreds of years pass. There are other books that are written that are non-canonical books. Other books uh, uh, track the, uh, hey, Alvin, hey, Mrs. Z. welcome back. Newlywed couple here, uh, close, uh, close to me. They're close to each other, but they're close. Uh. Hundreds of years pass, and, and, and after Malachi closes the first part of the canon, uh, we, we hear uh, nothing explicit in the way of Scripture uh, as far as the Christian tradition comes. And, and, and in that time, in those centuries that are passing, there is an anticipation that is developing. There is, there is a hunger and a desperation. There is a hope in the people of God. They are looking forward to the Messiah's coming. They are looking ahead and listening to the scriptures and they are waiting for what God has said about their situations, what God has said about justice and injustice to come to pass. Swelling up in them over this time of quiet and silence is a desire for what the sacred writings have said to These writings, these scriptures express that God will send a Messiah, an anointed one. And and the anointed one will come. The anointed one will be the light in a dark world. The Son of God will be an unconquerable hope and will bring to pass victory and, and joy for the people of God. The people who have been busted and cracked and disappointed and disillusioned. The the Messiah will come, coming out of Israel to bring people who have been draped in oppression the beauty and the splendor of God. The Messiah will come The one sent from God who is anointed by God will be a military powerhouse, will be a war hero, will be an economic strategist, will be a political genius because all that God's people have gone through, be it economic, be it it, it by uh, the, the enslavement of empires against them, will be addressed in the person of the Messiah. So when Jesus comes, there are expectations for him. When Jesus shows up, there, there, are, there are hopes for him. He comes into this long history, into this long thread of, of Israel's history and of their life together in first century Judaism. And, and some people accept 
who Jesus claims to be. Some people accept what he says about himself, but others cannot accept that he is the Messiah. Some people accept that he is the one anointed by God and sent from God. Some can, with the church later, call him Lord, and others cannot. Others cannot look at his humble circumstances of humanness. He's born, he's born, so he's a man, and yet he's claiming to be God, and this is just not understandable for some. And, 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 and the Holy One, the suffering servant, the righteous one who is Jesus, comes to bring a kingdom that is in the world and at the same time is not of the world. And he starts a ministry of, of, of sharing the good news of God, the gospel of God. His, his good news is the gospel. And, and, and I want to tell you this morning that the gospel is news, that we proclaim the gospel, but the gospel is not just news. The gospel is the proclamation, what the early church called the kerygma. The gospel is the story of God's redemptive work throughout all time. But the gospel is not just the story. The gospel this morning is a person. The gospel this morning is Jesus. The gospel is not just what we tell and what we share, but the gospel is who we know. The gospel is this person. Jesus. And, and if you will, uh, tr- try to uh, talk to yourself <clears throat> this morning as you hear me. Try to talk to God and to pray and ask God to give you an appreciation, not just of the proclamation of the gospel, but of the person of the gospel. Not just of something you can read, pick up, and articulate, but of a person that you can know, a person that you can relate to. Because it is the person who is Jesus, who is the gospel, that comes into time in order to redeem and to restore, to reclaim and to renew. Now, if it is true that Jesus enters into history to redeem history, to redeem people, to redeem creation, then the work of Jesus cannot stop until all historical injustices are righted. If it is true that Jesus uh, entered into time in order to present God to us, then the work of Jesus cannot stop until God has met society's worst systems of evil and unrighteousness. If it is true that, that Jesus' life, death, his resurrection, his ministry of intercession now means anything for us, then it has to have meaning for our lives right now, today. If it is true, as Jesus says, that the kingdom of God has come, then that kingdom has to relate in real time to our society, to what happens to us socially, to what happens to a life and a people now. 
And the way that Jesus, who is the gospel, relates to us, the way that Jesus, who is the message, the embodiment of justice and reconciliation, the way he relates to us is through love for us, through inviting us into relationship, through inviting us into service so that his intention for justice can be realized. God's news is about justice. And how how do I know that God's news is about justice? There's two uh, ways I know that. One is because I read the scriptures, and two, because I read the life of Jesus. And I think if we as God's people read the scriptures, and if we read and listen to the life of Jesus, we cannot help but come away with God's intention for reconciliation, for righteousness, for justice. It is filled with instructions and laws and expectations for us as the church, for the Hebrew people in the the first testament to serve, to take care of others because of justice. Now this will be important in a few minutes. We're going to go to Acts chapter 6 in a minute. I didn't give this to you, Nate, but we're going to go there in a little while. But before we go to Acts chapter 6, I want you to read a few passages with me uh, to appreciate how God's word talks about reconciliation, righteousness, and justice. Now, I've been talking for a few minutes. It's your turn to talk, so I want you to read the scriptures together. Uh, I want you to use your strong voice. I want you to use your best voice to read from these various passages. The first is out of Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24. If you read slow, you know, speed up, and uh, if you read too fast, slow down. All right, y'all ready? I'll start, I'll drop out, but you keep going. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The next passage is Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. Come on. And the end of every three years. The next passage is Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2. Some of y'all got tired because your best voice turned into a quieter one. So uh, take a deep breath. Let's read together. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. The last passage from Zechariah 7, verses 10 through 12. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refuse to pay attention and stop their ears that they might not hear.
Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Reading these four passages can anchor us in justice. And you'll hear some of this language when we get to Acts 6. We've been in Acts 6 before. Uh, We spent 10 years in the book of Acts, uh, and uh, we covered Acts chapter 6. And so we're not going to cover it uh, in great detail today, but you will hear some of these themes coming coming back. Now, Now, these are just four passages of Scripture. If we're to read the life of Jesus, we will see similar things. His life, I will boil down this morning to two things. Jesus had two gifts. He had uh, uh, two uh, tasks to accomplish. I will boil his life down to two things, and I will say that the two things today that Jesus' life was about is that he preached on the one hand and he healed. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom of God, and he enacted the kingdom of God through healing. He preached, say that, say he preached, (coughs) say he healed. Now, he proclaimed what life in the kingdom of God was like. So when Jesus preached or when he taught, he was preaching about God's rule, God's reign, God's expectations for life. And and what he would do when he healed is he would embody or show or display what, what he preached looked like. So, so he would preach about righteousness, and then he would show what righteousness was like when he uh, healed a woman who had been infirm for 12 years. He would, he would preach about justice, and then he would engage with a, a Canaanite woman about the healing of her daughter, even though rabbis and Syrophoenician women didn't have these kinds of conversations. So on the one hand, he taught, and on the other hand, he embodied what he taught primarily through the ministry of healing. And even if we think about how he talked about his suffering, how he talked about uh, the consequences of his life being execution and, 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 and a capital offense and death, even if we think about him preaching, leading him to those consequences, his consequence, which is his sacrificial death for you and for me, is an act of healing and reconciliation and justice. Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost, he he preached and he healed. And then there is this third thing that he does before he leaves and enters into glory with another ministry. He enlists followers to follow him. He has his disciples who have been training with him and learning from him and relating to him and loving him and getting to know him follow. And I think sometimes that Jesus having these disciples follow him is troublesome because it would be one thing if they walked around with Jesus and observed his ministry. It would be one thing if they took notes and tried to apply, well, you know, what Jesus is doing and then Jesus did this, but when I do it, I have to make it look like this. It would be one thing if Jesus and enlisting disciples, having them follow him, looked like him saying, well, I did it this way, but when you do it, you do it this way. But that's not what he says to his disciples. He says to the people who he enlists to follow is, I have done these things. I have done these works, but you will do greater works. 
Now that's problematic because Jesus is God and um, he is saying to disciples that he is invited into mission, I have done some good things, but you will do great things. And right away, what I do, and I don't know what you do when you study words like that and passages like that, but right away what I do is I say, yeah, but Jesus, you know, I allegorize it. I sort of spiritualize it. And I say, well, uh, and even that doesn't work because, I mean, how do you spiritualize what Jesus says and it's still not me, what Jesus says? And so what I do is I start excusing myself from statements like I start saying, Jesus is Jesus, and I am not. And so when Jesus says, you will do greater works, Jesus can't mean that I will do greater things than Jesus. And I make an excuse for myself. And some of you do the same thing. And, and, and there is a sense that there is something certain and clear and different and unique about how Jesus preaches and about how Jesus lives and about what Jesus does. There is, a, there is a certainty to what he does. I mean, we can't die for the salvation of the world. Jesus did that. So that can't be the greater thing that I do, right? I mean, Jesus cannot uh, be imitated or copied when it comes to being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet, there is this tension or this dance, depending on how you look at it, between what I know about Jesus and what Jesus says about me. There is this, there is this, this, this scratch between me and what I think about my life and what Jesus says about my life. He says to us, follow me. And when he invites us, when he commands us to follow, what does that look like? Well, for today's time, it looks like serving. And I'm going to talk to you over the next 15 minutes or so, uh, 20 minutes or so, about how Jesus expects us to follow in serving. I'm going to give you a few things to remember about service. And uh, before I do that, I want you to look in your Bible. Some of you all bring your Bibles to church, even though we have this screen. Uh, so today I kind of didn't give them the passage. And that was an error on my part. But uh, I'm going to read for you Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And uh, if you have a Bible, open it up and look there. Uh, and uh, read, and if there's a person next to you that doesn't have a Bible, lean over, whisper shame on you, and, uh, and don't let them see your Bible. <laughs> I'm just kidding, visitors. Uh, I, have, uh, I have the uh, English Standard Version, so it may be different from yours this morning. Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I might repeat this, but I'll tell you now that Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. They are Jews, 
all of the church is full of Jews at this point. So everybody in the early part of Acts who expresses a faith and a trust in Jesus is Jewish. Some of them speak Aramaic, the original native tongue. Others, because they are part of the diaspora, that movement out from Jerusalem, speak the other dominant language outside, and that is Greek. And Luke calls them Hellenists, okay? Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching, uh, preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, of, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So much of this I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it, but I'm not really going to talk about it. So verse 7, I'm not really going to talk about. I'm going to talk about that next week. Um, this great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But what I want you to notice just in the hearing, and if you have it in front of you, you can kind of see that, 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 that the word of God is increasing in the lives of people, that the church is growing because the word is spreading. Now, um, I heard one of you sort of flinch when I was reading, uh, and you have a reaction that I always have when I come to Acts chapter 6. This is also what I'm not going to talk about. I'm talking about it, but I'm not talking about it. My reaction when I come to this is to hear the apostles, uh, this is James, you know, this is Peter, um, this is the, the, that, that, that number of 12, um, who are preaching, and you know they have this comment about we will not leave the ministry of the word to to serve tables, right? And I sort of flinch, and it's kind of like this, you know, you can't hear the inflection, but you wonder like what was the attitude behind that statement? Because like when I read it, it sounds like you can't serve a table because you got to preach, right? I always have that reaction. And you know what guards me against sort of going in the direction of that reaction is, is, is two uh, phrases here. One is that uh, uh, in verse 5, if you have your Bible in front of you, that what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, I'm not talking about this, but, 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 but there is an affirmation in the church that what these leaders who have to give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, there is an affirmation in the community that what they are doing is right. 
Now, you get in trouble when you make a decision to work and to serve in a direction that the people of God never confirm or affirm. I'm not going to talk about that. But I want you to sit with it because if there is no affirmation, if there is no understanding of people around you of what you are doing for the church, that's an invitation for you to pray, for you to listen to the people around you. Sometimes we have to ask leaders to stop what they're doing. Sometimes we have to ask people who are serving in ministry to stop what they're doing. And the, and the gift of the attitude would be, the church wants me to do something else. The people of God are discerning that God wants me to act in another way. Okay. The alternative is, what do you mean I can't do what I want to do, what I feel called to do? I'm not going to talk about that. Now, what I'm, what I'm going to talk about here is, is how we serve. And you get the context, one, because we've talked about this, two, because you're hearing it in the Scripture. There is a, there is a conflict in the early church. Now, uh, there's one thing that's happening that's beautiful, and that is that the gospel is being proclaimed, that Jesus Christ, who has ascended in order to pray for the church, uh, is being proclaimed, and that the church is evangelizing. They are sharing what God has done in their lives with other people, and that evangelism is working, as it were. That evangelism is drawing other people. It is attracting people. It is wonderful because people are coming and saying yes to Christ. People are coming and saying no to Christ. And that's always the response you want. You either want people to say yes to Christ or you want people to say no to Christ. Because it's true that you can't meet Christ and not decide one way or another for or against. And this is happening in the church. And that's the beauty and the mess of ministry. The church is growing because people are hearing the gospel. And at the same time, there's a really big problem called discrimination. There's a problem, and we would, we would, we would, we would call it uh, racism and maybe even sexism. There's discrimination in the church at the same time while God is working. And can I tell you, I told somebody this yesterday, that, that New Community is a beautiful church. New Community is a wonderful church. New Community can even be a romantic church for some people. Some people come to our church, and it's like, wow, you're in a relationship with our church. You really like this church after visiting one time. And, and, and God is working, and yet there are great conflicts, not just in Acts, but here, right? There, there is room. And here's the thing about conflict. Conflict doesn't always lead to division, but conflict always leads to some kind of change. And, and, and the Spirit of God is working here in Acts because the conflict doesn't divide the church. Conflict brings the people who are uh, affected, most affected, before the leaders, and the leaders prayerfully go about change. The conflict is that the Greek-speaking Jews 
who are who are part of that diaspora. The diaspora is the movement out from Jerusalem. This is not the African diaspora. This is the Jewish diaspora. So that the Jews are leaving Jerusalem and they're living in other places. The the main language uh, is Greek, and so they're living in those other places, learning that language, immersing themselves in that language, and they're losing their native tongue. These Jews who are now Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora are coming back into Jerusalem, not just for festivals and not just for holy days, but they're coming back into Jerusalem to live their last days. They're Jews. They, they come back to Jerusalem. They come back to Palestine in order to die, in order to be interred. They come because they know they're going to die and they want to be buried in this land. And so what happens? These families are moving back into Jerusalem. They don't speak their first tongue anymore. They are Greek-speaking Jews. The church is growing. The gospel is being shared, and ministry is happening, and the widows, because the men die first, apparently. This is still kind of common. The men are dying, and maybe they don't leave provision for their wives because they can't. And when men don't leave provision for their wives, the families come around And maybe because there's been movement, there is no biological family to care for these widows. So what happens? The church family steps around these widows and provides for them. The first thing I want to say to you to try to grab your mind around this is that the church serves, but the church serves a neglected people. Say neglected. Say it again. Say neglected. I don't want you to get sidetracked by this word. It comes out of this text. It's a profound, it's simple, but it's a foundational truth. The scriptures, and we've read four of them earlier. We've come to Acts chapter 6. The scriptures has a lot to say about widows. And and when you read the scriptures and you see widows in the prophetic material, in Exodus, in the the first five books, uh, even in the New Testament epistles, when you see widows, I want you to think of not just widows, but I want you to think of widows, of children, of the poor, of the outcast, of the orphan. Those are five groups. Of the poor, the outcast, the widow, um, uh, the, the the widow, the outcast, the ch- uh, the child, and the foreigner. So so you've you've got you've got foreigners here, you've got widows here, you've got children here, you've got the poor here. And any time in Scripture you see any one of those groups, I want you to train yourself to see neglected people, widows, neglected people, travelers, neglected people, children, neglected people. Because when Jesus encounters children in the Gospels, he is correcting his disciples and how they don't first serve neglected people. When Jesus encounters women who are most marginalized at his time, he is teaching his disciples to engage with neglected people. And this becomes an activity of the early church. We see it here in Acts chapter 6. When the Bible brings up the widow, when the Bible brings up the child, when the Bible brings up the orphan, when the Bible brings up the traveler or the sojourner, the Bible is not bringing up criticism of their character. The Bible is bringing up criticism of their social location. 
Does that make sense? The Bible is not commenting or criticizing the person of the child or the widow or the orphan. The Bible is criticizing the circumstance, the politic, the society that has come around that child, that widow, that orphan, and placed them in the situation that they're in. And what happens when the church starts to serve the neglected child, the widow, the sojourner, uh, the orphan, the church is doing two things. The church is meeting the immediate need for the neglected person. The church is caring for the person. And the church is correcting the structure that placed the person where they are. This is the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 6. This is the beginning of the church doing this and setting its organization and its structure in place for this kind of work. We get to inherit this ministry and the long thread of it, but in Acts chapter 6, it is the beginning of this prophetic act on behalf of God's people. We pick up this mantle and we become the promoters of this. We become the people today who say to leaders and to structures of power that God's people minister to people, as Howard Thurman said, who are disinherited. That God's people minister to folks who are cast aside. That God's people first serve neglected people. And I want to ask you who are listening to me uh, to, to search Uh, to search us as a body this morning, to search your own life this morning, and to try to find evidence that we are being God's people here, that we are being a people who serves the neglected. Search your own life and and ask yourself uh, in a prayerful way, not in a condemning way, not in an accusatory way, am I giving my life of service to folks who are neglected, to folks who are unnoticed? Because we can get away from this. I mean, we live in Chicago. We live in the United States. And, and certainly the United States and Chicago has neglected people. But, uh, but we can get away from it because we can insulate ourselves a long way away from Acts chapter 6, much less contemporary versions of Acts chapter 6 in our own lives. And I, I want to invite you maybe to pray this morning a prayer where, where you will ask God to help you uh, to see the person who is neglected and to see the structure that does the neglecting so that you can serve. The second thing, I have two more things. The second thing and then the third and then I'm done. The second thing here is that we serve for the sake of justice. Now, that first point was the longest point I'll make. This will be the shortest one because it's kind of a theme uh, for me this morning. Um, when, when, when I talk about justice, I always take the modifier social off. Uh, Because when I talk about justice, I try to talk about it the way the scriptures talk about it. And the way the scriptures talk about justice is uh, in a total and encompassing way. And when we say social justice, we are taking one component of justice as far as scripture talks about it. Now, scripture talks about righteousness, which tends to be interpersonal. It tends to be uh, related to people, people interacting with one another or people interacting with God. So 
right relationships uh, have to do with righteousness. And so how do you live out right relationships with one another, right relationships with God? Scripture talks about righteousness. It talks about justice. It talks about shalom. Now, when Scripture talks about righteousness, it tends to be really restricted to people and this sort of interpersonal level. When Scripture, on the other hand, talks about justice and shalom, it's always cosmic. It's always bigger. It's always broad. It's always all-encompassing. So to talk about justice um, and, and what God says about it is always to talk about the social element. But it goes beyond that. So we, sh- we abbreviate ourselves when we say social justice. As God's people, when we say justice, we mean that God commands and captures all things. Justice in the created order of nature, justice in my own life, justice in the institutions and structures that I'm a part of or that I'm committed to being against. Now, now I want to say something to those of you who <clears throat> um, intentionally live your lives for justice. I want to say to you that we serve for the sake of justice, and it's important for you to give yourself, spend yourself, exhaust yourself for justice. And in a way, all of God's people do this. If you're God's person, if you belong to God, you live for this. So in some ways, I'm talking to a segment of folks. In some ways, I'm talking to all of us because this is what God's people do. Um, We serve for the sake of justice, but you can never serve for justice' sake without knowing the just one. And if you do... I shouldn't say you can't. Uh, If you do, you will sputter out and collapse. When you pursue justice with your life, you restrict what you do by your life. You only have so much life. And at some point, your life ends. At some point, your passion ends. At some point, what you suffer for falters. At some point, you get exhausted and you quit. And and, and when you give yourself to a cause that is never ending, like some sin, addressing it, ameliorating it, remedying it with your, you know, you just give yourself. You give yourself. And there's not much of you. There is so much of God. God is inexhaustible. You can't spend God. You you can exhaust God, right? God suffers with us. God gets tired and angry and, and emotional and torn up about the things that you get torn up about. But here's the difference between you and God. God doesn't stop. You stop. So, so, so the reason you connect with the God who is just is to yourself be unstoppable. Last point, the church serves 
First, a neglected people the church serves for the sake of justice. Is any of this making sense? The church serves using uh, spiritual gifts. Now, um, when I say spiritual gifts, I don't want some of you to stop listening to me because you don't know what your spiritual gifts are. In Acts chapter 6, we see the church calling people who are gifted with wisdom, who are led by the Spirit, who are prayerful, and these things become uh, the spiritual gifts that God uses to to enable them to serve the needs of these widows. Um, The apostles are gifted in the areas of preaching and teaching, and their spiritual gifts, the, uh, here's the definition for spiritual gifts, the abilities that God gives are on display when they preach and they teach. So, so here's the question. What are my spiritual gifts? What are the abilities that God gives me? Before getting to that question, I want you just to take a moment to appreciate what God is doing in this text. God is providing for the church's needs when the church doesn't see its needs being met. There's a conflict in the church, and God provides for the need. What God does in the church, God does in the church's people. And somebody's here this morning, and, 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 and I'm tempted to be a real Baptist preacher on this point, just to kind of make the point go away. Somebody's here this morning, and you aren't convinced that God who meets the needs of the church will meet the needs in your life. And I want to tell you that God never meets the needs of the gathered people without meeting the needs of the scattered people. So if there is a need in your life, Would you go to God the way the church in Acts 6 is going to God precisely since all God does is meet the need? I can't tell you how. I can't tell you when. But I can tell you on the authority here, on my own life, on some of y'all's lives as well, that God who meets the need in the church will meet the need in your life. The church is using spiritual gifts God, rather, is, in, is giving spiritual gifts so that the church uh, needs can be met. Now, uh, you who want to know your spiritual gift, let me, tell you, let me tell you some ways for you to open your heart, open your eyes, open your ears to see uh, what your spiritual gifts are. This is not going to come from Mount Sinai. This is going to come, like, from the floor here. So uh, don't expect anything earth-shattering. I want to give you uh, three questions to ask three questions to ask, and I'm almost done. Um, The first question is, where are you? Where are you? I should tell you that spiritual gifts are gifts that God gives, abilities that God gives. Spiritual gifts are never for you. They're never given to you for you. God gives you gifts for the church. And you need to hear that because there's a period after that. Now, some of you, some of you don't know your spiritual gifts because you aren't serving the church. You're serving, 
but you're not serving the church. You're not serving God's people. And you cannot tell me in this Bible that God gives gifts without those gifts being meant for use of the church. So here's the question. Where are you? Are you in the church? If you're not in the church serving, don't expect to know what your spiritual gifts are. Well, Michael, I mean, my life is pretty big. I understand that. And I'm not going to mess with your life and your busy life. I'm just going to tell you that you won't have opportunity to see God's gifts, the gifts that God gives you, if you're not serving in the church. So be okay with that. So one, where are you? Number two, uh, what's, in quotes, natural to you? What what has God given you um, that is natural, um, that that is most you? Now, when I say natural, I mean redeemed natural. I don't mean unnatural natural. I, I don't mean the part of you that, you know, you're just good at something in your soul. I, I talk about it as sort of what God, when God redeemed me, God made my natural different. And the question for you is, what is natural to you? What do you find in the church, serving in the church, serving for the church as being natural? Not as something that you grabbed, not some skill that you acquired, not something that you went to a class and picked up, but that you find by no reason other than what God could do and give is easy. Last question. What is life-giving to you and to the church? What when you do, what when you serve, what when you act, what when you practice gives you life, gives you um, energy, gives you spirit? All three of those questions in some ways build on one another. So go back to the first part about serving in the church and come through this language about what has God given you that is natural and what is uh, life-giving. I'm done. Uh, this morning I had, um, this is, uh, this is um, not a spiritual gift, but for those of you who are a little bit before spiritual gifts, and you're sort of saying, well, I mean, on my way to understanding that and embodying my spiritual gift, is there something for me? I want to tell you there is, because there are some ways to serve God's church that don't require the spiritual gift of dot, dot, dot. And I kind of laughed almost uh, when I thought about whether I would share this um, as, I, as, I, as I close. And uh, this morning on my way to, to church, I, I, was on, I was on my bike going to the green line, and um, I haven't decided whether to tell my wife this because she told me not to take my bike this morning. And so don't you tell her because I haven't decided that I will. But uh, I get to the green line, and, and I'm noticing all kinds of things. I've not been on the L with my bike before, so this is a first. I get up on the platform, and I come off, and I get on the platform, and something's wrong because my bike stops rolling. And, um, and I turn around and I look, and the rear wheel is off of the thing that the rear wheel is on. And uh, 
I, I, for some reason, I call it, it's a frame is what it is. Um, and, uh, and it's off. And so, so I, you know, I kind of, first I laugh at myself because I already know I have no idea what to do. And so I kind of laugh at myself, and I'm a little frustrated. I look and say, where's the train? No train. Okay, so I have time to get stupid. So I, I look, and I get down. I sort of take my book bag off, and, uh, and I say, yep, yeah, I don't know what this is. So I start looking, and I see what the problem is, but I, I thought about you too, Daniel. I don't know why your phone is not in my uh, – go put your number in my – you got a new phone? Oh, you didn't want me to know your number. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so, I, so, I'm on, so, I, so the train comes, and I'm fooling with it. It does nothing, which was going to happen. I get on the train, uh, and I think of three people. You're one of them since you weren't in my phone. God bless you. Um, I, text, I, text two, I text two guys in the church, two, two other brothers, and um, they're not the type who will want me to tell you who they are. I won't say that it's Roland and Alan, but um, <laughs> I text them, and I just text, are you in church today? And Roland still hasn't texted me back, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so Alan texts me back. I'm on the green line, and I'm, you know, I'm hot. You know, I sweat naturally, so I'm all, I'm just, oh, I'm mad. And uh, Alan texts me back. He's like, yeah, well, you need me to preach or something? And I <laughs> said, no, but I need you. So, so we kind of do this arrangement thing. And, and uh, I get off um, and get on at the blue line at Clark and Lake, come downstairs. And I noticed, I noticed a couple of things. I noticed, one, that the elevator uh, at Clark and Lake smells just like the L. Um, and the second thing I noticed is that um, the word for basement on the elevator is concourse, which, you know, doesn't make any sense to me. Again, I've not done the bike on the L thing. I've been on the L, but I don't use the elevator. I like stairs because party exercise, whatever. So, so I get down um, on, the, uh, on the floor, get on, get on, the, get on the blue line, and uh, I also notice how long it takes me to do this. You know, so I'm automatically becoming frustrated because I like to move a whole lot faster. I'm like, God, just like, I'm asking God why this happened to me. It happened because you stupid. You don't know how to manage a bike. So thanks for the answer. So, so I get off. Carrie, I also noticed, by the way, uh, for those of you who like the blue line, that handicap accessibility stops uh, on the blue line in this neighborhood are uh, Logan. Uh, and Belmont, neither of which was my stop this morning. So I got off at California because it's closest to the church, and I start walking with my bike, and I'm kind of doing like this and doing like this. And so Alan texts me. He's like, are you here yet? And I just kind of get mad. You know, I'm not going to tell you what I was saying because I'm repenting. I got to preach today. I can't say that word. I got to preach today. I'm trying to get all real religious, you know, trying to be it's not working. So I, I, I read his message. I kind of stop and I look at my phone and, and, and I call him. He says, I'm sitting in my car. I tell him I'm not there yet. He texts me back. I'm sitting in my car in the air condition. And I'm thinking he's kind of saying, you know, it's really hot in the church, so I'm waiting. But then I get really mad because he knows, like, I'm walking from the blue line. So I call him and I say, why don't you come get me instead of me walking to the church? And he's like, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so he comes. You like that part too, baby? Okay. Uh, you were waiting for that, weren't you? He's like, give me something to scream at. So, so, so Alan comes. I'm at BP waiting. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm happy to see him is what I am. So he puts my bike in the trunk. 
And uh, I have this sense that it was simple because I knew what it was. I just didn't know how to, you know, I didn't have the dexterity or the skill, you know. So he comes while we're praying and, like, comes and holds this washer up and says, you're missing a washer. I'm going to go get you a washer. And I look at him, and I'm just kind of like, I love you, but I want to slap you, you know. A washer? You know what a washer is? It's that little bitty. I know what it is. And here's the whole point of the example. Alan did not, um, he didn't serve the body of Christ with some spiritual gift. But this morning, what Alan did was a very normal thing that he could do to help me. And he didn't do it to get included in the sermon. He actually isn't here, so this is the only reason why I'm saying it this way. He did it because it was helpful. And some of you, you know, no matter where you are on this whole spiritual gifts and da-da-da-da, the question is, can you do some things that may not be God-given in a spiritual sense, but that are normal, that are natural, and that are helpful? There are five, ten examples I have of you doing this in our church just this week, I, and not even counting our regular ministries. But I want to leave you with that and leave you with this language of serving so that you can pull together what God is saying to you this morning. Bow your heads. Before a key is stroked, I want you just to kind of mutter or mumble your own prayer. I want you to pray and ask the God who is the gospel. I want you to ask God to speak to you. You've been hearing these sermons on the gospel these last three weeks. And each week, I want you to come in one way or another and say, God, what am I supposed to hear? Maybe you need quiet to hear it. So I'll close my mouth, and I'll I'll just take 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and invite you to pray that. No keys yet, just silence. Silence.